We're in Lamentations. We've been going through the first three chapters. Last week we looked at the first two chapters of Lamentations and we were discussing the issue of calamity and the sovereignty of God. We asked what are God's people to do in the face of disaster? How are we to grieve? And what are we to think about our sovereign God when devastation befalls us? And as we've seen, the book of Lamentations offers help in answering these questions. Because the prophet Jeremiah takes one of the greatest calamities to ever befall the people of God, and he looks at it straight in the face. And without holding back and with complete honesty, God's word presents for us a poem of grief. Jeremiah grieves the horror, the pain, and the uncertainty that God's people faced when the Babylonian conquerors captured Jerusalem in 587 BC, when they took most of the people into captivity and they left a trail of disease, destruction, and death. And Jeremiah sits in the midst of this ruined city and he laments in song. So we saw in chapters one and two, the three realities which believers must face when calamity befalls the people of God. Because though this calamity was a direct result of Israel's sin, it nevertheless shares certain commonalities with all calamities. Through this timeless lament, God gives believers in every age an example of how to deal with the tragedies that we face. So in chapter one, we looked at the reality of the lost comfort. Over and over again, Jeremiah echoed the refrain about Jerusalem that she has no comforter. Tragedy leaves people in a lonely, comfortless state. And that, of course, leads us to wonder, what is God doing? What is he doing through this? And in chapter 2, we examine the second reality which every believer must face when calamity befalls the people of God, and that was the legitimate cause. And that's where we talked more about the sovereignty of God in suffering. Because though it was Babylon who captured Jerusalem, and though we know that this was a punishment for Israel's own sin against God, the poet makes clear that the ultimate cause of this suffering, the suffering of God's own people, was God himself. And Judah, through their unrepented sinning, had made God their enemy. And it was that without blinking, Jeremiah lays the blame for even the worst suffering, ultimately, right at the feet of Yahweh. In chapter 2, verse 17, he wrote, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded to do long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. So as we saw, the truth is that God is sovereign over everything that comes to pass in his universe, even over suffering. And the reality is that should be a comfort to us, not an embarrassment, not something to sweep under the rug. If it were not so that God was in control, we would have much greater cause for despair. If calamity befell God's people without his say-so, then to whom would we turn from deliverance from it? What a horrible world that would be if we served an anemic deity. Thankfully, God, who is sovereign even over disaster, is also purposeful in his sovereign reign. And therefore, the people of God can take comfort when trials befall us because we know who has brought them and that though they're painful, He's using it for our ultimate good. And we ended last week on a little bit of a cliffhanger, which was the, the final 
reality, the third reality every believer must face when calamity befalls the people of God, and that was the lingering question. The lingering question. To Jeremiah and to the people of God, the thing that was most horrible about the Babylonians sacking Jerusalem was not the death, it wasn't the shame, it wasn't even any of the, the violent atrocities themselves. The, the, the hardest part about it was that there was theological implications of God destroying his own holy city. The city of David had fallen. God had obliterated his own dwelling place among his people. Jeremiah had said in chapter 2, verse 7, that the Lord has scorned his altar. He's disowned his sanctuary. What could this mean? What does it mean? You see this happen. There's all these questions that came to mind. We might state that lingering question in, in several forms. We might ask, has God abandoned his chosen people? Had he broken his promise to them? Were they utterly forsaken? And if so, what, what does that mean for their future? God had made these unilateral, these unconditional promises to them. How could it all be over? Will Messiah still come? Jeremiah has to be wondering, the new covenant which Jeremiah prophesied, is that still going to happen? And the biggest question of all concerned the character of God, and that is this, that is, this is the heart of the lingering question. Can God still be trusted? Can he still be trusted when calamity befalls his people? And though our situations differ from Israel's, don't we ask similar questions when we face calamity? Where's God when I'm suffering? This pain seems so hard. It seems so unnecessarily cruel. Why would God let this happen to me? Doesn't he care? Is he still faithful? Can God be trusted? So chapter three of Lamentations offers answers to these questions about God's faithfulness in the midst of tragedy. And thus, I've, I've entitled this sermon, Calamity and the Faithfulness of God. So we've looked at calamity and the sovereignty of God. Now we're going to look at calamity and the faithfulness of God. In chapter three of Lamentations, believers are given four things that we must call to mind when disastrous circumstances cause us to question God's character. There are four things that believers must call to mind when disastrous circumstances cause us to question God's character. And so the first thing that believers must do when disastrous circumstances cause us to question God's character is to reflect on the grievous circumstances. We need to reflect on the grievous circumstances. And this is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. But a word before, before we read it. I think one of the biggest, the biggest mistakes believers can make when we face tragedy is to minimize it. What I mean is this, so, so many believers lack a robust theology of suffering. We, we know how to handle the, the little trials, but when a big one comes, we're at a loss for words. Often we, we try to explain it away. Sadly, because of that, many Christians are, are, who are suffering very greatly are met from well-intended brothers and sisters with wrong-headed minimizations of their suffering. Hey, it could be worse. Everything's going to be okay. This is just a season. And those things may be true sometimes, but we don't, we don't know that everything's going to be okay. Not now, at least. It could get worse. 
And like a doctor slapping a smiley face sticker over a cancerous tumor, all some Christians know how to do in the face of calamity is pave it over with platitudes. And like I said, often these niceties are sufficient for life's smaller sufferings. We use them, we, we have these phrases and we continue to use them because often they do cover, they offer a modicum of reassurance when we're feeling down. A lost job, a temporary illness, or even a financial crisis can be softened by a kind reminder that it truly could be much, much worse. That's true, often. But such brotherly bromides are wholly insufficient comfort in the face of the truly tragic. And their impotence to soothe is exposed when you try to, to apply these to the victim of, of sexual assault or the young mother who's just lost her, her husband to suicide, who's been blindsided by it, or the man who's been rendered a quadriplegic in a motorcycle accident. In these situations, people are asking much bigger questions about God. And minimizing those grievous circumstances is simply not a sufficient answer. They can't pretend as if it's not as bad as it looks. And neither should we. And neither should we. If we would have any hope of wrapping our minds around God's character when disastrous circumstances cause us to question him, we need to first stop lying to ourselves about how bad things are. The first thing we must do is honestly reflect on the grievous circumstances. This is exactly what Jeremiah does. This is exactly what he does in these first 18 verses of chapter 3. If you think he wasn't pulling any punches in chapters 1 and 2, get ready for this next part. Because Jeremiah has moved from talking on behalf of the city, where he, he was speaking as though he was Jerusalem, speaking on behalf of the people. Now he's talking about his personal sufferings in the midst of this calamity. And just as before, he sees God as the ultimate cause of his present pain. You'll also notice as we read that that, that pattern of 22 verses for each chapter has been broken in chapter 3. Or 22 verses for each chapter, yeah. And so while Jeremiah retains that alphabetic acrostic that we talked about, where, where there's one verse for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, now there's three verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 66 verses in chapter three, and you're probably wondering, we're going to be here all day. Would that be so bad though, really? <laughs> but, but this three times for each letter, it's an intensification. It's meant to draw the reader in. What's he doing differently here? What's happening? This is the crescendo of the book of Lamentations. Chapter three is the, the climax of this funeral dirge. It's right dead in the center. And as we'll see, right in the middle of chapter three, there is something seems almost wholly out of place in a book so full of suffering and complaint. So let's read these first 18 verses together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So some of the phrasing might be slightly different from your translation, but, but try to follow along. Lamentations chapter three, verses one through 18. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. 
He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and he tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as the target of his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all the day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. The first thing you notice when, when you read these verses is Jeremiah is picturing all of these sufferings as personal acts of God against him as an individual. He begins one and three with saying uh, he's the man who's seen affliction under God's rod of his wrath that he, that's been ceaseless. It hasn't stopped. Verse three says again and again, the whole day long. Jeremiah is pictured as wasting away. It's as though, it's as though he's being attacked from the inside and the out. In seven through nine, he pictures God as caging him up, walling him in, and, and not even listening to his prayers is a sense of, of claustrophobia. God, Jeremiah says in 10 through 12, is like a bear pursuing him and tearing him to pieces or like a hunter shooting arrows into him. He's mocked by the people and he's poisoned by God. He's so beat down that it, it is as though God has made him grind gravel with his teeth and forced him to cower in the dust. That word cower carries the idea of being trodden down to the ground, pushed to the lowest possible position. And Jeremiah's response to this is understandable. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. He says he has no peace in his soul. He's even forgotten what good is. He doesn't remember what it means to be happy. There's no light. There's only darkness. And so he says in verse 18, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from Yahweh. Utter hopelessness when he faces up to the reality of the grievous circumstances he's in. This is where he stands. He, he looks at it. He evaluates it. He says, there's no hope. My endurance has perished. There's, there's no hope. But now think about this for a moment too. Jeremiah wasn't just one of the idolatrous, God-forsaking sinners of Jerusalem on whom this, this punishment from God had come. He was the prophet set apart by God from before he was formed in his mother's womb. He was called by God for the express purpose of preaching to the people of God this message of warning about this disaster. His whole life was spent warning Jerusalem to repent of her sins. And he underwent much significant and harsh mistreatment from the people as a result. Now, what thanks does he get from God for all of this? He's left to weep over the people he loves and is himself deeply afflicted. And so I say, uh, Jeremiah is nothing, nothing if not honest with God during this, right? 
Often I, I think that we are afraid to be honest with God during our suffering. You know, we, we, some of this you're reading, you're like, oh, don't say that, Jeremiah. Oh, gone too far, buddy. But here, Lamentations, I think, demonstrates that believers can be honest with the Lord about our pain. And note, however, there is a, there's a large gap between honest questioning and, and blasphemous accusations. But, but I, I think we're given reason to think that Jeremiah hasn't even in, hasn't sinned in any of this that we read. He's just representing to God how he believes the, the situation lies. And the really important thing about honestly reflecting on our grievous circumstances is that we don't stop there. We don't stop there. We need to be completely honest about the severity of our situation, but we also need to be completely honest about God's character as well. If we linger too long on lamenting our, our circumstances, our, on our circumstances, our reflecting may ferment into grumbling and complaining. After looking at our grievous circumstances, we need to lift our eyes back up to God. And this is where Lamentations takes a turn. So remember, we're talking about four things that believers need to call to mind when disastrous circumstances cause us to question God's character. We've just looked at the first is that we need to reflect on the grievous circumstances. But now in verses 19 through 24, we're encouraged to remember the great promises. Remember the great promises. Here is where Jeremiah's lamentation shifts. He turns his attention away from the circumstances and back to God. See, what he says right after, he's just claimed that his hope is dead. His endurance is over. Right after he's just said that, his tune begins to change. So first, we're going to read verses 19 through 21, which is kind of the lead up to, to Jeremiah's realization about hope. And then we're going to look at uh, 22 through 24. So read with me real quick here. Lamentations 3, 19 through 21. The poet writes, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind. Don't read ahead. I mean, think about this. We have gone through, we're up to, what is it, 66 verses into Lamentations. And it's been utter hopelessness, utter despair. You read this line, what is the thing he's going to remember? What is that? I mean, this is a terrible, terrible disaster that's fallen upon Jerusalem. The city's fallen. Many of the people are dead. They've been carried away into captivity. Jeremiah himself is suffering. He's questioning God's promises towards the people. And, you, and you're thinking, it is hopeless. You, you, you're tempted to believe in verse 18. There is no hope. Certainly it's over. Sorry, Jeremiah, we had a good run. It's all over. But there's something he remembers, something he calls to mind. That should pique our attention. So, so here as he begins this transition from hopelessness to hopefulness, the first stop is prayer. You notice that he, he begins in verse 19 by addressing God. He's been talking about him, and now he's switched to the second person. He's talking to God. And he petitions God in verse 19 to remember his afflictions and his wandering. He's adding his prayer to the ones he's already made on behalf of Jerusalem in, in chapters 1 and 2. Just as he's cried out on their behalf for God to see and to intervene, 
Jeremiah is now asking God to note his pain in the hopes that God will intervene for him. He says, for me, at least, I haven't forgotten this pain. Have you? Please pay attention. I haven't forgotten it. Verse 20 says that his soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within him. This word he's talking about with bowed, my soul being bowed down, it literally means is melted. It's like every time he remembers the suffering that he's going through, again, his soul would melt and his livelihood would be sapped. And if you've ever been through a significant loss or significant tragedy, um, there's those days where you wake up and you've forgotten about it. You wake up and you're kind of in a good mood and you're like, all right, we're going to have breakfast. You know, we're going to, it's going to be a good day. And then you remember. And it's like your soul melts again within you. You're not out of the trial yet. And so Jeremiah constantly remembers this. His, his soul constantly, continually melts within him. So where is he going to find hope in a situation as dire as this? Where, where do we find hope? When even as he prays, he feels like God's shutting him out. That God's not even listening to his prayers. He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. When he's reached the point where he feels that hope is utterly dead. When the night is the darkest it could possibly be. What on earth could he remember to give him hope in circumstances like this? And us, when, we're, when there's nothing left, we're at the, the very brittle and fraying end of our rope, when it seems like things could not possibly get any worse and joy lies murdered in the streets, where could we look for hope? What could we call to mind and remember that would give us hope in the midst of the worst of life's circumstances? It's this. Read verses 20 through to 24 with me. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I will hope in him. What's he remember? He remembers who God is. See, everything we look at, we honestly evaluate our circumstance and we look at it bold in the face. We're like, this is bad. This is really, really bad. You're not going to find hope in those circumstances themselves and you have to look elsewhere. You have to look up. You have to look and you have to remember who the God you serve is. And that's precisely where Jeremiah's mind goes in the midst of this great calamity. He looks in verse 22, he looks at the breadth of God's love. After all he's seen, it would be easy, right? It'd be easy for Jeremiah to conclude God has ceased caring for his people. He's, he stopped loving them. It would be easy for him to conclude that. But the first thing Jeremiah remembers, which gives him hope, is the ceaseless breadth of God's love. He remembers that God's love for his people is constant. Verse 22 says, The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. There's something interesting, actually, in verse 22, the first part of there, which mine renders, the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. There's better reason to believe, based on manuscript evidence, that, that a more accurate rendering of that would be because of Yahweh's loving kindnesses, we are not finished. If you have the NASB, you'll, you'll notice there's a little footnote in there. It'll say something like, uh, we are not condemned. 
So it doesn't, it doesn't alter the idea of God's loving kindness because his mercies are still constant. But, but what's interesting is that it completes Jeremiah's thoughts. It's because of Yahweh's loving kindnesses towards them that he can be confident that we are not finished, that the story's not over, that the last page hasn't been written. So because of God's loving kindnesses, he has hope. He has hope. Jeremiah and God's people aren't finished. He's not entirely wiped out Israel, has he? He still has a plan for them. And Jeremiah knows this must be true on the basis of who he knows God to be from what he's seen in time past from God. For us, even when you're facing the hardest, the most confounding trial of your life, even when it all seems entirely hopeless, you too can find hope in knowing that because of God's loving kindness toward believers, because of his promises, because of his track record of perfect promise keeping, you too can have hope. Your story's not finished yet. You see, God's promised believers in every age that he's never going to leave them or forsake them. He promised it to Moses. He promised it again to Joshua, Joshua 1.5. They wouldn't leave him or forsake him. And then Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, applies it to New Testament believers in Hebrews 13.5. See, God's steadfast love should give us hope in the trial. Though our circumstances may have changed, our God has not. And that word there, uh, it'll say, in your version, it'll say steadfast love, or it might say loving kindnesses. That refers to God's covenantal love and faithfulness. This is a term used throughout the Old Testament to talk about God's positive disposition toward his people and his beneficial action, which he does on their behalf. It's, it's not just talking about God's character, but about his, his character manifest through action. What Jeremiah is saying is that this exile, this trial, this thing that makes it seem like all hope is lost, it's not the end. God's unchanging love for his people as demonstrated all throughout their history and codified in the promises that guarantee it, that shows that there's hope. And verse 22 continues. It says, his mercies never come to an end. Mercies or, or compassion speak of God's feeling of tenderness or care for his people. It's a word used in 2 Kings of, of a mother's compassion for her child. See, God cares. He cares. Even as he afflicts, he cares for the people of Jerusalem. He cares for Jeremiah. That tender care, that compassion, that mercy, who it says it never ceases, it means it's never exhausted. God hasn't spent all of his love on Israel yet, and he never will. What's so amazing about this line is that it's saying that not only will God continue the work and be faithful to Israel, he still, even in this catastrophe of his own making, he still truly feels for them. He has compassion. Jeremiah knows that God has not determined to end his relationship with Israel. He has not ceased loving them. He's not ceased caring for them. And so he has hope. And so he has hope. And so he's talked about the, the, the breadth of God's love in 22. And, and now he talks about the depth of God's love in 23. Verse 23 builds on that theme of God's love as the basis for hope. While 22 dealt with the breadth of his love and compassion that they never cease, 23 deals with the depth of God's loving kindnesses and compassion. That they're new each morning. It's a great verse, isn't it? 
It's a great verse. They're new each morning. But what's he mean by that? I mean, he's saying that they're new each morning. What what does that exactly mean? Well, Jeremiah is communicating that that God's covenant love and his, his feelings of compassion for his people are entirely inexhaustible. But, but more than that, they don't just, they, it's not just that they don't wane from day to day. It's quite the opposite, in fact. They're refreshed. They're made new every single morning. And not only has God's love for his exiled people continued as it has in the past, it hasn't even diminished a little bit. They're in a trial, which, is, which God is using as a judgment upon his own people, a chastisement. And his love has not diminished. Not even a little bit. And doesn't that just make sense? Our immutable, our unchanging God, he isn't like us. Every aspect of his character is always at 100%. It's like you and me, we're we're fickle. And from day to day, you know, my my love is up, it's down. No, God's always 100% who he is in every one of his attributes. He doesn't fluctuate. God's love, therefore, is both constant and enduring. And that gives us great hope. So this consideration of the depths of God's love, it causes the the poet to shift from talking about God to just most naturally directing praise toward him. He says that great line, great is your faithfulness. he, He can't help himself but to spring forth in praise of God. Looking at all that, great is your faithfulness. And this magnificent expression of worship from which we get the the great hymn, a favorite of mine, it refers not simply to the magnitude of God's faithfulness, that that it's it's an excellent, it's a a, a great faithfulness, but, but it refers also to the multitude of his faithfulness as an act, that he has done many faithful things. It emphasizes that, that God's acts of faithfulness, his activity as a promise keeper, he has repeatedly shown himself to be faithful over and over and over again. He always keeps his promises no matter what happens. And there's reason to believe here that, that because of some of the similarities in language, that, that it's likely that Jeremiah was actually thinking, uh, probably drawing on Isaiah 63, 7 through 14, which was another time in which God has announced his care for Israel, and yet he's turned against them, and he said he's going to remember and deliver them. Read that with me real quick. Isaiah 63, 7 through 14. Note the similarities. This is Isaiah chapter 63, 7 through 14. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. But note this, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? 
Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. And so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. God's done this before. His people have faced times where it looked as though all was lost. It looked as though maybe he's not going to keep his promise. But count on it. Every single time God has kept his promises to his people. So if you think in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your dilemma, you think to yourself, this is the time when God's going to break his promise. You'd be the first. It won't happen. He's entirely trustworthy. His faithfulness is great. He has a track record of faithfulness and compassion, even toward rebellious children. Because faithfulness and mercy are simply a part of who he is. You remember when Moses asked God to reveal himself to him? Do you remember what Yahweh proclaimed to him as he passed by? Let me read to you another passage. Don't turn there because it's really quick. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I think that, that Jeremiah is recalling some of these things. He's using the same language of the past, compassion, loving kindness, faithfulness. And he's remembering God's promise and he's recalling who the God he serves is. The circumstances have changed, but God hasn't changed. That's what gives him hope. That's what gives him hope. So there's this reversal in his thinking, isn't there? In verse 24. In, in verse 18, he just said, so my my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So he's hopeless. But after reflecting on God's faithfulness, mercy, and love, in verse 24, he now says almost the exact opposite. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That is a reversal that will give you whiplash. How did he go from hopelessness to hope so quickly? It's because he remembered who God was. Because he remembered who God was. And he remembers that God satisfies. That word there, their portion, you know, it refers to a share in spoils or your cut or, or an inheritance. But he, it's used frequently throughout the Psalms to speak of the writer's total satisfaction in God. What the writer's saying here is that he's content in God and he desires nothing in addition to him. He's satisfied. And isn't that interesting? Isn't that so often where our suffering drives us? It's the fires of tragedy which draw out the dross of earthly pleasures. In our comfort, it's, it's easy to forget. It's easy to be satisfied in these little comforts and pleasures of life, irrespective of the giver who, who's given those good gifts. We slake our thirst in streams of blessings and instead of going to the fount of all blessings to himself and finding satisfaction there. 
it often takes the loss of earthly pleasures. Sometimes even to the degree where all we have left is God to remind us that that's all we really needed to begin with. It is he alone who can truly satisfy. It is he that, that suffering shows us is our portion. He's the one where satisfaction can be found. And that's what allows us to say along with Jeremiah's soul, therefore I will have hope in him. And before we move to the next section, I want to ask you a question. This reversal in Jeremiah's thinking seems to almost come out of nowhere. This was bothering me as I was studying this. I was like, so he gets this deep into the book and he's like, oh yeah, God's faithful. Where's this come from? How can we, in other words, how can we look in the middle of our circumstances? What's going to remind us that God's faithful, that he keeps his promise, that just because we're suffering, it doesn't mean he's broken his promises? Well, consider this. Consider this. After recounting all of these horrible pains the Lord was bringing on him, something, something changed his thought pattern. And I wonder if it wasn't this. I wonder if as he began to reflect on the fact that even as he's sitting in the ashes of a, of a God-wrought disaster, questioning if God had abandoned his promises to this people, writhing in that hopeless agony, maybe in the midst of all that, Jeremiah remembered that this very disaster was in fact itself evidence of God's faithfulness. How could God's judgment be evidence of his faithfulness? How could, how could God bring in suffering? And suffering be evidence that he's trustworthy. Here's the point. The fact that God brought judgment on Judah was not evidence of his being a promise-breaking God. Rather, it was evidence of his faithfulness to keep his word. And what better evidence of God's faithfulness could there have been to Jeremiah, the very prophet who foretold this promised judgment, than that God had done precisely as he said he would do? You have to wonder if at times through Jeremiah's four-decade-long prophetic warning ministry, if he began to question, is God ever really going to do this thing that he's promised? But now he's done it. He had done what he said he would do. And if God keeps this promise, would he not also keep his other promises to restore his people? No, this wasn't the end. And Jeremiah remembered just who God was. I think another one of the mistakes that we make sometimes when, when disaster falls on us, when we're suffering, is that we treat it as if it makes no sense at all for a Christian to be suffering. Like, how can this be? We think, how could that happen? I've been so faithful to God. I've been to church every Sunday. I've been, I've been a really good Christian. And really good Christians don't suffer. I have a friend who, who went down this line of thinking when, when she lost her husband. You see, she had never really questioned this assumption that if she was dedicated to the Lord, if she lived a life of, of trying to serve him, of, of ministry, of trying to raise her family well and, and be a good wife, then, then of course her, her kids would turn out great. Her whole life would essentially be calamity-free. So when things came crashing down, she wondered, how could God break this promise to her? Because he never made that promise. It wasn't until years later when she asked that question, she realized, I was believing God for a promise he never made. He never said faith believers don't suffer. In fact, it's precisely the opposite. His word promises suffering for faithfulness. In this life, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter, I love this verse, 1 Peter perfectly pegs our shocked reaction to those trials. In chapter 4, verse 12, it says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. That's exactly our reaction, though. 
No, God, bad stuff's not supposed to happen to Christians. No, it does. We should expect trials. We should expect them. Even bad ones, even really horrendous ones, because God has told us they're going to come. When we suffer, God's not breaking his promises. He's keeping it. And what's more, he has reason for bringing these trials. And that brings us to the third thing. The third thing that we need to call to mind when disastrous circumstances cause us to question God's character. We need to recall the good purpose. Recall the good purpose. So at this point, you're like, lamentation should be done. Let's end on a high note here. Roll the credits, right? But it doesn't end here. It doesn't end here. We think it should all be fixed now. He's, he's come to the right realization. He's remembered who God was. You know, he's repenting. Like, we should be good. Sometimes when we're suffering, we think if we can just figure out the magic words to say, if we can just say that right prayer, if we can do, God, what are you trying to teach me through this? If I can learn it, then it's all going to be over, right? Pass the test. And wave his hand from heaven and make everything okay. But this raises a question. Even when we faced up to the reality of our circumstances, we've acknowledged that God's in control of them. Even when we come to the place where we, where we recognize that God un, is unchangingly faithful and merciful to us, we still got to ask the question, well, what now? When the trial keeps going, what are we supposed to do? And for Jeremiah and the people of Judah, the trial did not relent for a long time after this how do suffering believers respond in the meantime? What would God have us to do? Well, we wait, we consider, and we recall the good purposes of God in suffering. Read verses 25 through 39 with me. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord's commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that come good and bad? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? So he says here, it's good to wait. There's a purpose in these suffering. Once a believer's hope is turned back to God, we now have this opportunity to consider more carefully God's design in allowing the suffering. He says that God is good to those who, who wait. But it's not a passive waiting that he describes. He, he completes the thought, to those who seek him. What are we waiting for? Well, 26 says we wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. See, when believers be come to the place where they trust God in the midst of their tragedy, there is an immense peace. It's still painful, but we come to this place where we stop kicking so hard against it where we accept it, not, not as some sort of resigned defeat, but in faith-filled trust. It's as though we can say to ourselves, the Lord will deliver me from this when he sees fit and no sooner. And I trust that he has a reason to keep me in this trial until then. What's the reason? Why does God leave us in periods of suffering? We've talked about this some in the previous message. 
We know it's not punitive. We know he's not punishing us for our, because, because our sins are paid for in Christ if you've put your faith in God's son. And if the trial was to chasten us for sin and we've repented of that sin, then, then why does the trial continue? Well, Jeremiah essentially says it's good for us to suffer. It's good for us to be quiet, to bear the yoke in our youth, he says. And suffering, as we said, has a way of driving us back to God. It beats the grumbling out of us, doesn't it? It teaches us to trust him. In fact, so much so that in James 1, verses 2 through 4, it says that we should be happy when trials come, not because we're, you know, we enjoy the pain, but because of what it produces. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The fact is, these trials aren't going to last forever either. He's doing something to them, but they're not, also not going to last forever. He says in verse 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he doesn't afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. There's going to be an end to the trouble you're facing. There's going to be an end. It will get better. No one can guarantee that it's going to be in this life, but ultimately it will get better. Though he brings trials, he's going to again have compassion because he has storehouses of abundant, faithful love toward us, his people. We should not see these times of suffering as cruel and malevolent or that God's become apathetic towards us. No, Jeremiah says God doesn't afflict from his heart. I mean, he's not doing this to pain us for no purpose. He's not just trying to hurt us like a, like a child with a magnifying glass, burning ants. No, God has a reason for suffering. God only brings purposed suffering. So when disastrous circumstances cause us to question God's character, we need to recall the good purpose of the suffering. And finally, the fourth thing we need to call to remind, when disastrous circumstances cause us to question God's character, we need to repent and rest in the previous deliverances. This final thing is twofold, repentance and rest. In, in the last verses of Lamentations 3, the poet offers an extended prayer to his faithful and compassionate God. I'm going to read through this. I'm not going to give a lot of comment because we don't have a ton of time. But uh, I want you to see the completeness of the thought of chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 40 through 66 says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You've wrapped yourself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall has, have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed in over my head. I said, I'm lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close up your ear to my cry for help. 
You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You've seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and the thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the objects of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. It's this long prayer that he ends with. He's calling on the people to repent. And then Jeremiah offers his own extended prayer of repentance to God. In it, he, he further laments the suffering. You, you think after this is over, he should stop lamenting. Friends, there's two more chapters in this of just lamenting. It keeps going. But, and he reminds God, though, in his prayer of his past deliverances. And he calls on Yahweh to punish those evildoers who are now persecuting him, to be, to be just towards those who have been wicked. And we note that the, the, the content of the prayer doesn't become less honest on this side of recognizing God's faithfulness and purpose in the suffering. But at least now the poet's head is in the right place. He, he understands who God is. He has hope again in the midst of it. See, Christianity, it's not a religion of mere sentimentality. That's one of the reasons I wanted to preach through this passage. You know, we all know Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. But all the surrounding matter, you don't realize how bad it is unless you study all of that. And then you see this bright, shining beacon of hope right in the center of it. It's not, we're not merely just sentimental people, you know, cross Stitching, I mean, cross-stitching is fine, but cross-stitching little verses, you know, and, and platitudes, we, we, we're able to, with confidence, look at God's word and face up to the reality of suffering. Look it straight in the eye, because his word does, isn't afraid to do that. The Bible prevents, presents for us a God who afflicts and comforts. We don't need to shy away from those things. But like Jeremiah, we need to embrace the truths, and when we do face trials, our prayers of repentance and for deliverance should see our circumstances as they really are and comprehend who God really is. Like Jeremiah, we too must take care that our own exile, in it, we come to examine ourselves and repent of any sin we, we find. We're to come to God with complete honesty, reflecting on our grievous circumstances, remembering his great promises, recalling his good purpose in suffering, and letting that culminate in repentance, and ultimately rest. The Lord is faithful and his love is steadfast. He cares for you and in time he will deliver. So with confidence and hope in his character, you can wait upon the Lord. Now, let me close with this. You know, historically, this massive calamity didn't, it wasn't the end of the people of Israel, right? The Babylonian captivity is not the end of God's people. We have now the benefit of hindsight on this tragedy. We get to fast forward to the end of the exile and witness the work of the promise-keeping God, that he did deliver them, he did redeem them. So it seems appropriate, especially on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, to, to end our time this morning by recalling how God's faithfulness finally brought Israel out of that exile. The Psalm 126 is their song of thanksgiving. It's just a couple of verses. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. 
Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The fact is that when it comes to calamity and the faithfulness of God, tragedy is never the end of the story for the people of God. Never is. Perhaps your suffering will continue but a short while. Perhaps it will continue for a lot longer. Perhaps it will pursue you unto death. But without a shadow of, the, of a doubt, on the basis of God's word, I can promise you this. If you are one of God's people, one day our faithful God will restore your fortunes. One day he will wipe away every tear. One day we'll look back on our times of trial and we will remember the faithful God who brought us to it and through it and we will glorify him forever in his presence, singing the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Pray with me. Father, you are so worthy of our trust. Forgive us for the times when we don't see it clearly, when our eyes are so clouded by the circumstances we're in. Help us, Lord, to be, to be quick in turning back to you, to be quick to remember your loving kindness, your compassion, to remember your great faithfulness. We thank you, O oh God, that you are a father that doesn't change, that is always compassionate. We thank you that there's a purpose in the trials you have for us. And Father, I would pray this morning, especially on behalf of any of those who are here or listening who are presently in the midst of a great and grievous trial. Give them hope. Give them hope that can only come from remembering who you are, that you're the God who keeps promises. We pray all of this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.